All right, well, it, we have, um, it is good to be here. We have spent the last year, oh, we have a nursery, okay? A nursery in the back. Jessica's going to be doing a nursery. And uh, so if you would like to, to um, participate in that, you may. Um, ben, we need to do the, the Alt-P thing. Um, and so we have been going through um, focusing on the Christ since the, um, the, the beginning of the year, looking at, at Christ. And um, in the beginning of that, we're looking at the shadow of Christ, which means that we've been looking at the Old Testament at types of Christ. And um, Okay, we're having technical difficulties here. Hit, hit the button for me. Hit escape. There we go. Hit slideshow again. There you go. There we go. All right. Oh, don't you love computers? <laughs> Anyways, so, we, no. Did you say no? You make your living off them. Don't say no. Anyways, yeah, they're irritating. But as we've, as we've gone then, we have seen these different uh, passages um, of Christ, these different looks of who Christ is. We've seen him as the creator, the seed of woman. We've seen him as the redeemer, the seed of Abraham. We've seen him as the priest in the order of Melchizedek, the Lamb of God. We've seen him as the way, as we considered um, Jacob in that ladder. We've seen him as the coming king. We've seen him as the Passover lamb. We've seen him as the light of the world, the bread of life. And then two weeks ago, we saw him as the living water. Um, as we, about a month ago, back at the end of January, actually two months ago, when we saw Christ as the Melchizedekian priest, we looked at Christ in the order um, of Melchizedek and as the, as the priesthood of Christ. But in that, we really looked more um, at the the nature of where he would come from, the, the, the origin of his priesthood and such. Um, and so we looked at that, that side of it. Today we want to look at another aspect of that, or at least beginning today we want to look at another aspect of Christ's priesthood, and that is the meteor, meteorship, mediatorship um, of Christ. That Christ is our, our mediator. That as he is the, a priest, he stands as the mediator for us. Now there is a, a lot of information that we're going to look at today. Um, or at least from this passage um, that we're going to be looking at. And there was so much, honestly, um, that I felt like we needed to break this into two parts. I don't know if you kind of recognize it. If you haven't recognized this, you've you know, you got to think a little bit more here. But each week, there have been two major points. Did you recognize that so far? That we've had this two main points every week? We've had the practical application of the passage, and then we've had the... Anybody remember? The prophetical, good, at least one person. The prophetical application of the passage, okay? And so every week it's been the same thing. We're going to first look at the practical application, and then we're going to look at the prophetical application. Well, today, we're only going to then look at the practical application. We're going to, Lord willing, save the prophetical application to next week, okay? Because each of them have so much to be involved. So today we want to look at the practical application of, of this passage. And first, we want, in doing that, we want to look at the priesthood of Aaron. So... If you want to, you can turn back to the book of Exodus, chapter 28. Turn back to Exodus 28. We will begin looking at, as well, in Leviticus 8 to 10, which we read um, as our, our Bible reading this morning. But in Exodus 28, we've been coming through, if you would, the Bible, looking at these different indicators, these different types, pictures of Christ. And so, Israel now has gone through the Red Sea, right? They, they have... They're already in the wilderness, and God is providing the manna, and God is providing them water, right? And so they come up to Mount Sinai, 
And there they stop for a period of time so that God can give to Moses the law. And he can give them um, the, the things, the, the, uh, the ways in which Israel is going to, to live and abide and reside. Okay? One of the things that God is going to reveal here is regarding the priesthood. What, what he's going to have for them as a priesthood for Israel. And so not just who's going to be it, we know that's going to be Aaron and his sons, but there's going to be how they're going to dress, you know, and, and what they're going to do. And God's going to be very detailed in how he does that. Today we want to look at this consecration side of the priesthood, okay, because this is what, what's going to be revealed in Christ. So beginning at chapter 28, verse 1, I want to begin reading here um, some of this section that here in, in, in chapter 28. We read, Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me, that is Yahweh, as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And you shall, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as a priest. And these are the garments which they shall make a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister to me as a priest. And so, what do we see? The very first thing that God says that he wants to, um, to, to be done there in this consecration of this office. Make clothes, but first he says to them what? Their function. What, okay? The clothes are going to come second, but the very first thing is his what? His function. They're going to do what? They're going to minister to me. Do you understand? So the very first thing he says is, I want you to choose these priests so that they can do what? They can serve me. Okay? They were set apart by God for God. Does that make sense? God said, I want you to take Aaron, and I want you to take Aaron's sons, and then he names them, and I want you to bring them here so they can what? They can serve me. Okay? There were a lot of people in Israel, weren't there? There were a lot of other Levites, weren't there? Okay? But God said it's going to be through Aaron and his sons that, that I'm going to be served, that these guys are going to serve me. So their function, first of all, is to serve him. Okay? And so he goes on then and says that in doing so, that I want them to have what? Special garments. There's these special garments that I want you to to make for them, okay? And then he goes on and says how they're going to do it then. They're going to, they're going to make these special garments and, and they're going to place it on them, okay? And this is where we jump back over back into Leviticus 8 and Leviticus chapter 10. So if you had that um, in the morning reading, you can just go to that in your sermon note sheet um, or on your uh, bulletin insert or you can turn to the Bible, Leviticus chapter 8. And in, in that, what do we see in this ordination, okay? The ordination that he had. First of all, they're going to do what? They're going to take off his old clothes. Chapter 8, we said, Take Aaron and his sons with him in the garments, the anointing oil, the bull as a sin offering, two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread, and gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle meeting. So Moses did as Yahweh commanded him, and the congregation was gathered together. Okay, And so they did all that. And he says, verse 6, he says, Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and he what? Washed them with water, and he put the tunic on them. Well, in order for them to be washed... And then the tunic to be placed on them was the first thing implied here that has to have been done. Their old garments had to be taken off. Okay, So take off the old clothes. Second thing is, 
Wash them with what? With water. Now, this is important, as we're going to see this later on in the application here, okay? The second thing is they were supposed to be washed with, with water. What's the third thing, then? Put on the what? Put on the new clothes, okay? What's the last step in this whole um, consecration process? Do you remember from our reading? Anointing with the oil. And then I want you to anoint them with oil. I want you to take, so they, first of all, they have the blood, right? And I should have actually put that as a, a step, first of all, that they're anointed with the blood, and then they're anointed with the oil, okay? So, uh, because it is important to have that, so remember that as we go into the next section. They're anointed with the blood, so they take the blood of the offering, right? And the blood of the offering is placed where? On their right earlobe, on their right thumb, and on their right big toe, Okay? If you don't mind, let me make an aside on that. Okay, what do you think the indicator? What do you, why do you think that's symbolic? Putting the, the 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 blood on the ear, the blood on the thumb, the blood on the toe. Good. Okay, what you hear, but I would submit to you, it's beyond even what you hear. I think it's it's referring to your head. So everything that's going on in your brain. But clearly, we want to be careful. I mean, your ear is one of the major sources of what input. Be careful of what you what? Let into your brain. Or how you, or it could be how you hear as well. Um, um, but I, I think it's being consecrated, because um, we're talking about the consecration of this priesthood, be careful of what you allow in you. Because, I mean, honestly, you know, I, I don't know about your past, okay, but I know I lived on the other side of the road tracks before I was saved. And, and all I need to do is hear somebody, I mean, I saw a, a little one of these little stickers, and I won't tell you the letters because you'll try to figure out what they said like I did. My brain is always inquisitive. Well, my brain was able to come up with what it said. Well, now I had this stupid thing in my brain, you know? And, you know, so hopefully my kids are naive enough that they're growing up and they see it, they see letters, and they don't have a clue what what those letters are symbolic of, right? Well, I figured it out, you know, because I wasn't naive growing up. And um, there's something to be said for naivety. And so, so now here I am. You know, we're going to talk about, I want to be a priest of the Most High God, right? And I've got what? Trash floating around in my, my brain. So we've got to be careful, okay? In the, in the Shema, does anybody know where the Shema is in the Bible? Deuteronomy 6, okay? 4 to 9. And so in the Shema, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. And the words which I teach you this day shall be in your hearts, and you shall teach them diligent to your children, whether you're sitting in a house, whether you're walking away, whether you're lying down, whether you're sitting up. And you shall put them as a as a sign, you shall bind them as a sign upon your hands, on your hands first, and you shall put them as a frontlet between your eyes. And then you shall write them upon the doorpost of your house and on your gates. But when he says about putting them as a frontlet between your eyes, it's the same concept. Whatever I allow to go into my head or into my brain, I need to be careful that it's governed by what? The Word of God. Well, here's the same way with the priesthood, okay? That their ears, if you would, are anointed with the blood, okay? The blood of consecration. And so their ears are to be consecrated. Their minds are supposed to be consecrated. And then they are anointed with the oil, okay? So that they are set apart unto God. And so we have this this consecration that these men were chosen by God, set apart by God to serve God, okay? We're quickly going through this so we can look at the second half of of the message. But this is important for us not to forget. There is then also the severity of the office that we read about in Leviticus chapter 10. Because here, right after this consecration of, of, of Aaron and his sons, 
to this office that they're set apart by God for God to serve God, then now all of a sudden in Leviticus chapter 10 we read that Nadab and Abihu, the two sons, the two oldest sons of, of Aaron, they get, I think, well up with themselves with what? Pride. They're the priests. You know, they're the ones who are set apart. Oh, look at them. And so they go into the, not the temple, but the tabernacle, and they offer before God profane fire. They offer to God what God did not require, what God did not command. They decided how to worship God. Do you get it? It's profane fire. It's profane worship. God said, I want to be worshipped in this manner. This is what the priests are to do. And Nadab and Abihu treated that flippantly. And they said, oh, no, that doesn't matter. Here's what we're going to do. Do you remember the great King Uzziah? Right? Right? That's the one that, um, that Isaiah refers to in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uzziah reigned in Israel for over 50 years. He is probably, if not, the, you know, we talk about David being the greatest king, and Solomon maybe, but in, the, in Israel, Uzziah was one of those great kings. Okay? He was a godly king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, except for when he got older. Does anybody know what he did? Go ahead. He got full of himself, and what did he do when he got full of himself? No. That was, that was um, Hezekiah. He didn't worship idols. He did what? Ah, he decided that he could offer the offerings, that he could burn incense to God. He went into the temple. Uzziah went into the temple and said, I could do the work of the priest too. And do you know what happened to Uzziah, who was a man after God's own heart as well, like David, who served the Lord and, and, and removed the idols from the land? What did God do to Uzziah? He struck him with leprosy immediately. And the priests were shooing him out of the temple. That's right. Get out of here. And he lived in obscurity for the rest of his reign. His son Jotham began to co-reign with him at that point. You can go in and you can kind of look at that. Because he was a leper. He was a leper. God did not choose to remove the leprosy from him. Does that make sense? He lived the rest of his years as a leper. As one of the greatest kings of Israel. But he ended his days as a leper. Nadab and Abihu were chosen by God, for God, to serve God, and yet, right in the very beginning of their ministry, they chose to disrespect God. And God, at the beginning of every dispensation, chooses to um, severely reveal His holiness and His desires for man. Think to the beginning of the church age. The beginning of the church age. Okay, That's the book of Acts, right? And so, there were people selling their properties and giving it to the, to, the, to the good of the body. And then there was a man named Ananias, and his wife's name was Sapphira. And Ananias and Sapphira sold their property, and they gave the proceeds to the Lord. But what do we know from hindsight being 2020? They kept back a part of it. We don't know. The Bible never tells us how much they kept back, right? Let's say it was $100,000, bring it in our, our day. Okay? And maybe they took to the church... $99,000. Do you understand? They may have only kept one one-hundredth of it. They may have only kept one, 1%. They may have kept 10%. I don't know what they gave, what they kept. But we know that they, they said before the Lord, 
And they said before the people that they were going to do what? They were going to give all of it to the Lord. And so when Ananias brought it to Peter and laid it at his feet, Peter, by the, by the, the Holy Spirit, knew that this was deception. And he says to Ananias, is this completely what you've gotten from, from the sale? And he says, it is. He says, you're not lying to man, you're lying to God. And he fell down dead. And men came and carried him out to bury him. And a little bit later during that day, his wife came in Sapphira. And Peter said to her, is, is, that, is this what you all got from the sale of, that, of the property? And Sapphira said, it is. He says, don't you know you're lying to the Holy Spirit? You're not lying to man, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And now the, the men who have carried your husband out are coming to carry you out. And Sapphira did what? She died. She dropped on dead. At the beginning of each new dispensation, God reveals his holiness in how he requires himself to be worshipped. We're told in the Psalms to worship him in the beauty of his holiness. Peter tells us to be holy even as the Lord is holy. And so Nadab and Abihu offer this profane fire and instantly from the temple, from the altar, what proceeds? Fire comes out and kills them both. And so we read in, in Leviticus chapter 10 where, where Moses says to Aaron, he says, verse 3 says, Moses said to Aaron, this is what Yahweh spoke, saying, by those who come near me, are you listening to this? By those who come near me, I must, not I, I desire to be, I what? I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. There are two aspects of a priest's job. A priest represented people to God. Does that make sense? Okay? So, so when they went to offer the offerings and the sacrifices, who were they offering the offerings and the sacrifices on behalf of? The people. So they were representing the people to God. But second, do you note at the very end of this what, what Yahweh says through Moses as well? I must be what? I must be glorified because the priest not only represented people to God, he also represented God to the people. And so God wants to be glorified through those who are called by His name. And for those who come and approach and draw near to Him, He must be considered what? Holy. That's an important application because the next thing we want to look at is what we're told in the New Testament is the priesthood of believers. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Jerry Smith last week spoke a little bit from 1 Peter 2. As he talked about um, witnessing, and we're going to tinge on that just a little bit today. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, I want to begin reading at verse 4, down to verse 10. It says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. 
Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are his own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The consecration of our office. Note in that, overwhelming again and again, we're told that we are a what? Chosen, chosen, chosen. God has chosen you in me for him to what? Serve him. You are chosen by God, for God, to serve God. Just as Aaron and his sons were chosen by God, for God, to serve God, so we, in the New Testament economy, if you would, in this dispensation of grace, even as Gentiles, God has chosen us to walk in the light of priests. So, in the same light, looking at the same thing as we did with, the, with Aaron and his sons, what is our function? What are we told in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 are our functions? Well, first of all, we're told that we are to, to offer up what? Spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to the Lord. What was the function of Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Ithamar, and um, Eleazar? To offer up sacrifices, which were what? Acceptable to the Lord. Now, how do I know which were acceptable to the Lord? Because Nadab and Abihu died. They offered up a sacrifice but it wasn't acceptable to the Lord, and God wiped them out. That would kind of make you sober, wouldn't it? I mean, if you were um, Ithamar and Eleazar, and, and Nadab and Abihu are now gone, and, and it was your turn tomorrow, what would you do? I'd be reading what I was supposed to do. I'd, I'd be going back to the source saying, oh, I need to, <clears throat> I want to check this thing out. There is also, there's a whole lot of gravity that's going on there. Well, it's the same way for you and I. We'll talk about that in a moment. But first thing is, we're supposed to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to the Lord. Well, that being said is, I'm supposed to be representing man to, to God. When we pray, we're told in the book of Revelation that, that there, is a, um, there is a vial of incense that, that God has, that incense burning up before him, which is what? It's the prayers of the saints. Your prayers are, as it were, sacrifices, as it will, offerings unto the Lord. My question to you is, when you then pray, when you offer up those spiritual sacrifices, are you only doing it for you? Or are you representing people, man, to God? That's your job as a priest. It's not just for your own glory. It's just not for your betterment. God has you placed here so that you can be an intercessor, a mediator, if you would, not like Jesus Christ for salvation, but for intercession with sacrifices between man and God. 
That's why you're here. And so, what kind of sacrifices are you offering up to the Lord? Are you offering up spiritual sacrifices? A few weeks ago, back in the end of January, when we talked about Christ coming in the order of Melchizedek, we talked about how Abraham gave a tithe of all the, that he had to Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, right? And, and we saw how tithing then was not just something that was um, extraordinary for Abraham, but rather it was what God has required of man throughout ages. And to Israel, he says, in Malachi, you are robbing me. And so I asked a question back then, are you a tither or are you a tipper? Are you a tither or are you a tipper? God's not waiting your table. We treat God like he's the, the waitress or the waiter. Hey, thanks for the good job, God. You know, here's a, here's a five. You know, let me give you a little bit of money. Let me give you a little tip here. And some of us, you know, and this is a little aside too, based upon that. Um, we heard from people who worked at Ryan's, this is years ago, um, that they hated working on Sundays. Do you know why? Because Christians were the worst tippers. Isn't that awful? What a bad testimony. You'd think, I mean, now, honestly, you know, I mean, I know we've gone out on Sundays as well, but we shouldn't want people to be working on Sundays. And the fact is they're working on Sundays because all the, all the people who said they shouldn't be working on Sundays are going out to eat, making them work on Sundays. Um, and then they're not even what? Tipping them to, do, to, to serve them on Sundays. But that's an aside. That has nothing to do with it here. But anyways, so your spiritual sacrifice, what are you, what are you giving to God? Is it acceptable to the Lord? That's what we're supposed to do. Secondly, what does it say in 1 Peter chapter 2, as we read there? We're supposed to be declaring his praises to who? To man. Just like it said there in Leviticus chapter 10 that Yahweh said that he wants to be glorified before what? Before men. And so as his priest, if you would, as a being a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, standing before God, that as I function before him in the consecration of my office, being set apart before him, I ought to be desiring that my life should be glorifying to God. That when people look at me, they don't see me, they see who? They see God. They see Jesus. And so Jesus said, you are like a city that is set upon a hill. You're the light of the world. You're a city that is set upon a hill. That others may observe what? Your good works and do what? And glorify your Father who's in heaven. Not glorify you, but glorify your Father who's in heaven. And so, as you serve the Lord as a priest, put yourself as an Aaronic priest for a moment. You're not, but let's, let's just bring it back to the, what we were looking at the Old Testament and bringing forward. When you are offering that sacrifice at the altar, is the desire, like Nadab and Abihu, to have everybody focus on you, or to everybody to focus on the God to whom the sacrifice is being offered unto. Do you understand? Do you get it? And so, in a sense, that offering, right, is me doing a good work before men. Yes? And so when I do the good works, and so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, you should do it how? As unto the Lord, and in secret if possible, so that God gets the glory. And he who sees in secret will what? Reward you openly. But if you seek to do it like the Pharisees do, the hypocrites do, and they go out with their flowing robes and they sound the trumpet so everybody can see them doing their alms, he says, you what? You have your reward. 
But the whole idea of it then is I'm serving man to God so that man can see God. Does that make sense? So do you have a desire to make known to those that are about you the manifold grace of God? The holiness of God. That the God you serve is a holy God. If you live like the Gentiles live, in the futility of their minds, having their hearts dark and being alienated from all that is of God, in the lasciviousness and licentiousness of their flesh. If you live in that manner and the world sees you to live in that manner, what do they think about your God? Not much. Specifically, he's not a what? He's not a powerful God. He's not a holy God. But God has chosen to be known as a what? Holy, holy, holy God. And we are a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a holy people who are to be reflecting a holy God to an unholy world. And as the darkness in this world gets darker and darker, those who are His should be what? Shining brighter and brighter and brighter. So, our function. What about our garments? What about, what about our garments? Well, just as they were in their ordination to put off the old and put on the new, and we'll come back to that in a moment when we talk about the ordination. So, we're told as well that we're supposed to what? Put off the old man and put on the, the new. And so first we're supposed to we're told to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. Paul says, And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Do you believe that? I mean, Jesus is coming again. It may be today. I honestly, earnestly believe that it's in my lifetime. If I live to the, a, a, a standard age, that I believe in my lifetime Jesus Christ is coming again. I firmly believe that. And so therefore, I believe it's closer today than it was what? Yesterday. And it's certainly closer today than it was 40 years ago. And so, I think this admonition um, that Paul gave is, is to us as well. We need to what? Wake up. What do we say? Wake up and what? Smell the coffee. Wake up and smell the coffee. Jesus is coming back. Your salvation is closer today than it ever has been. And it may be, as we read in the papers many times, that it may be today for you, whether Jesus comes back or not, because it may be that you die in a car crash. It may be that I have a heart attack. Do you understand? And guess what? I'm going to meet my maker now rather than later. And so I need to wake up and smell the coffee. You need to wake up and smell the coffee. He says, get out of sleep. Verse 12, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in a day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh 
to fulfill its lusts. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 4, or forward, whichever way you want to look at that as. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the futility or blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in what? True righteousness and what? True holiness. I think that word true goes with both of those. Okay? That you put on true righteousness. Why would he say true righteousness? Because we all like to think of our own righteousness, but as we're told in the, in the prophets, my righteousness is like a what? It's like a filthy rag. It's a filthy rag. And so I want to put on true righteousness. Whose righteousness is that? Again, as we saw in Romans, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That... In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for me, that I might take upon me the what? The righteousness of God. And so, I, I am called to put off the old man, the old garments, if you would, put on the new garments, and the new garments are what? Created in true righteousness and true holiness. Not holiness like the world considers holiness. You know, people look at us and they, th- they think, Wow! You're really what? You're really holy. Uh-uh. No, if you want a picture of holiness, who should you look to? To Jesus Christ. To look to God. Then you, know, then you know what holiness is. If you knew what was really in my brain, if you knew what was really in my heart, you'd say, oh, you're so putrid, you're so vile. I mean, how ugly. And so I, great, I, I gain great comfort in Philippians chapter 3 where it says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the coming of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, for whom we look... Um, who shall change our vile bodies that they may be fashioned like under his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And so our, our memory verse this, this month, right? First John 3, that when he comes, we shall what? We shall become like him for we shall see him as he is. How I yearn for that day. That, that this body of flesh, this mortal, this corruptible, will put on incorruption, will put on immortality, will put on Christ. We'll have a glorified body. It doesn't matter how righteous you become in your own eyes. The fact is, you'll never be as righteous as God, apart from His righteousness within you. Now, the nice thing is, the benefit to being a believer is what? That when God looks at you, how does He look at you? Through the blood of Christ, which means that He's looking at you in the righteousness of Christ. Do you get it? And so Paul says in, in Romans chapter 5, going into chapter 6, so that since I'm saved and since I'm, looking, I'm being looked at through the righteousness of Christ, so shall I continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But because I've been saved, because I've been cleansed, I should have a desire then to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Romans chapter 8 says that this is God's purpose for my life, that I might be conformed to the image of his blessed Son. And so I should have the desire to be continually transformed 
into the righteousness of Christ. Secondly, we're told in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're supposed to be clothed with the what? The armor of God. And so as I put on the armor of God, it starts with what? The belt of truth. Ouch. Truth. What kind of truth? Absolute truth. We like to what? Give 99.9% truth. If I can just fudge what? Just a little bit. It's okay. It's what? It's mostly truth. God says he wants us to have absolute truth. And so we take on the belt of truth, and then we have attached to that the brut, the breastplate of righteousness. Ah, the protection. There we have the righteousness again. And we take, have on our feet the, the, what, the preparation of the gospel of peace. Okay. Then I put on the helmet of salvation. I take up the, 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 shield, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and the shield of faith, whereby I might be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And so, again, I ask you, how are you doing at putting on the new man? Are you seeking the righteousness of Christ in your life? Not for your own holiness, not for your own salvation, but because of the salvation which he's given to you. Do you have a desire? If you have no desire to put off the old man and put on the new man, I want you to challenge your faith. That's God's purpose for your life. And so we're told in 1 John chapter 1 that if we... um, he who says he knows him and walks in darkness is a what? Is a liar and does not the truth. And so if you say you know God, but you're walking in darkness and it doesn't bother you at all, God says you're a liar. But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses you from all sin. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you say you have not sinned, you make God a liar and his word is not in you. That's a pretty powerful statement. I didn't say it. God said it. We should have a desire to have on the, as our garments, the garments of Christ. Well, what about our ordination? Well, it's the same thing as we saw. You put off the old clothes, right? And then you're washed with the washing of the water of the, the word, right? So you, you put off that old man. God cleanses you through his word. Then you put on the new clothes, which is our Christ, we added in there the anointing with the blood, right? Because we're, we're, how are we anointed, first of all, with the, the blood of Christ, yes? And then we're anointed with oil. And in the New Testament, what are we referred to as the anointing of the oil? The Holy Spirit. And so Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that after we believed, we are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the day of redemption. What an, what an exciting thing. I can't lose my salvation. You can't steal it from me. Why? Because I've been anointed by God. Not because of Bob, but because of God. We are a chosen people. But what about that severity? Just as it was for the children of Israel in their priesthood, so it is for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to God. Okay, to be well pleasing to Him. Remember that, that offering up the sacrifices that are what? Acceptable unto Him. Okay? That we were well pleasing to God. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Wait a second, stop for a moment. Who's He talking to? It's Paul, right? Who's Paul talking to? Believers. 
And Paul says to believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust that we are well known in your consciousness. Paul says, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord. A better translation of that would be, therefore, knowing the fear of Yahweh. Remember, if you were in Sunday school, we talked about this, that in the Greek, there is no word for Yahweh. The closest we become is ego me, which Jesus refers to himself in John chapter 8. Okay? Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe ego me, unless you believe that I am that I am, you'll die in your sins. Jesus is Yahweh. He declares that. Okay? But as a whole, the word Lord wasn't pronounced by the Jews, and so they would use the word Adonai. And bringing Adonai over from the Hebrew into the Greek, it would become Kyrios. And so they would use the word Kyrios rather than the word Yahweh. Okay? And so, therefore, you have the terror of the Lord. I think Lord there very clearly is Yahweh. And the word terror there is the word which we would take back to the Hebrew as Yari, which would be fear. I talk to people about the fear of the Lord, and people say, oh, that's an Old Testament concept. It is not an Old Testament concept. I guarantee you that right after Ananias and Sapphira were killed, that the, the, the church, and you, you go read it in, 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 in the book of Acts, and you'll see it's there, that there was what? A great fear that fell upon the people. They weren't in fear of Peter. Who were they in fear of? Yahweh. They had the fear of Yahweh in them. They had a fear of God in them. It's okay to have the fear of God in you. Because if God's grace isn't going to do it, I hope his fear does. It does for me. God is my Abba. He's my daddy. And my daddy loves me. And my daddy is faithful to me. My daddy provides for me. But one of the ways my daddy is faithful and provides for me is when I am walking out of his will, he's faithful to do what? To give me consequences. To spank my butt. And in Hebrews chapter 12, you can turn and look at this later, but we're told that God does what for us? He chastens whom he loves. And if you're walking in sin, if you're not walking in the consecration which he desires for you, and he doesn't spank you, then guess what? You're not his. In fact, you're told that you are a bastard. We use it as a, a negative term, because, as a, almost as a curse word sometimes, because we don't like to think of that. You're an illegitimate child. You proclaim to be, but you're not. Does that make sense? God says it. I didn't say it. I mean, people think, well, you're really, it's judgment. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just quoting God's word. God's a God of grace and a God of love and a God of mercy. But God said this is the way it's going to happen. And I'm a holy God. And I will be approached when you come near me. You should come near me in what? Holiness. I'll never forget this. And I've shared this different times. And so, you know, Devin's here. And so I remember years ago when the previous church we were at, Devin and I would meet together in the mornings um, to pray. And, and, and Devin sharing with me at one point, he says, you know, the Lord has really burdened my heart that I need to stop and to be still before I come into his presence because he is a, a holy God. A holy God. And so many times when we go before him, we treat him with contempt. Not necessarily purposely, but flippantly. 
He is my Abba, he is my daddy, and he delights for me to sit on his lap on that easy chair so he can read a good book to me, huh? And tell me what he meant when he wrote it. But he's still the God of the universe who can, at one moment that he chooses to, snuff the life out of you. Aren't you glad that he doesn't treat your offering like he treated Ananias and Sapphira's? So, are you part of the chosen priesthood? Have you come to Jesus Christ? Have you had the blood, if you would, anointed on your ear and on your thumb and on your, on your toe, using that analogy? Have you accepted what Jesus Christ has done for you? The sacrifice which he has made for you, have you received that and applied it to your own life? With what are you clothed? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your own righteousness like the Pharisees? Like Nadab and Abihu? Their righteousness was like a filthy rag. Whose righteousness are you looking to right now? Yours or Christ's? I don't like this one. I really don't like this one. I don't like this. I just want you to know I don't like this message. I don't like proclaiming this message. Because I know this message also applies to who? Me, okay? And so I'm just like everybody else, you know? Man, this, what is this, this is a really a rough thing. But if God was to judge us as he did Nadab and Abihu or put in Ananias and Sapphira, would you be in fear of the fire? Just take your life this week. We're getting ready to have communion in a few moments. And part of that communion is saying that we have been in fellowship, we are in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And we're in fellowship with one another. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, some of you are eating and drinking of the body and blood of Jesus Christ unworthily. And for this reason, some of you are sick, and some are even what? Dying. Ouch! That wasn't even Nadab and Abihu, Ananias and Sapphira. This is to another city. This is to the city of Corinth. Ananias and Sapphira were in Jerusalem. And so he says, for this reason, some of you are sick, and some are even dying. Ouch. If God would use the same standard with us today, aren't you glad he's a God of grace and a God of mercy? God desires consecrated servants. If we want a revival in this land, I mean, honestly, how many of you would say you want a revival in this land? You would like to see a revival in the United States. Where does God begin with the judgment? In the house of God. If we want to see a revival in the world, there has got to become a revival in his church. Amongst his people. Amongst his royal priesthood. That we must be holy as he is holy. At least desiring. Understand you're not going to ever be perfect until you get there. But it ought to be your desire. Jesus said, be ye perfect, even as my Father in heaven is what? Perfect. People say, well, I mean, you're a perfectionist. (laughs) Yes, I am. My Father is a perfectionist. Not my earthly Father, which He probably is too, I hope. But my heavenly Father desires perfection in me. He's not willing to accept the lower standard. 
why am I? Why are we? We need to continue to press toward the mark for the prize of the upward calling in Christ Jesus. That upward calling is to be conformed to his image, to be his holy priesthood. What are you doing in your life to move you toward that? I have a real-life illustration that I would say I'm going to share with you, but I'm not going to share with you. I'm going to have somebody else share with you, their desire to share with you. Before we do that, I'm going to close in prayer. Um, And then hang on to your hats. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, you desire us to be a consecrated people. And Lord, we confess that we're not. I think of David in the Psalms talking about the sins of presumption. How we, we presume upon your grace, Lord. We know that you love us and that you've said that there's nothing that can separate us from your hands and um, that all we have to do is confess our sin and you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and so therefore we sin and we treat it flippantly. But you're a holy God and you desire in your people holiness. You desire us to be a consecrated people. Not for our glory, but for yours. Lord, I pray for that revival. I pray that you would help us to be a people who desire to proclaim the glory of your praises to this world. Help us, Lord, to hunger and thirst for you, to put off the old man and to put on the new for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.